If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This show is brought to you by Yinchi, the new game from Spielworks. Pre-order it now at spielworks.de. Out of the street corners they scream. You knew it was coming. You've been waiting for this for months. Rumor hardened into fear and now they scream at you. The sirens, their hysterical wail tearing through the white noise of the city. And you run. You run to pick up those things that can never be replaced. A picture of them in the days when they still loved you. Your mother's wedding ring. And then you turn to your shelf of games. You only have room for five. Five Games for Doomsday Five Games for Doomsday is a show in which board game personalities are thrust into a cabin in the woods to outrun an oncoming disaster, but can only take five of their games with them. But which will they choose? My guest this week is one of the most recognisable voices in board gaming. A pioneer of the handheld board game playthrough, he's loved as much for what he's willing to give of himself to his viewers and listeners as the information he provides. Best known for Rado Runs Through among the board gaming community, in his former life he helmed AAA video games such as Siphon Filter and Fable. My guest this week is Richard Ham. Richard, or shall I call you Rado, welcome to the show. Hi there. You can call me whatever you want. I'm, I'm going to restrain from using terms of abuse and I'll be very respectful. <laughs> So so firstly, how difficult was it for you to choose the five games that you were going to take into the apocalypse? Ah, you know what? That wasn't actually too terribly hard. Well, actually, that's that's a bit of a lie, because if I recall correctly, I had to like write you four or five times and add ask all kinds of clarifying um, rules for what this particular apocalypse was. No one else no one else has been as thorough. Really? Um, you 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 Crossed the T's and dotted all the I's. It was very impressive. Yeah, so I had to get that straight because that's an important question. Hypothetical apocalypse scenarios, as you well Absolutely. know. So I, I definitely wanted to get it right. But yeah, once once we had all the ground rules laid out, particularly, I think there was a bit of back and forth about the use of expansions as well. At first you said you were going to be generous and, hey, they could all have expansions if they want. But then you pulled back and said, nope, only one of them can include expansions. And did I say that? I'm yes, usually, you did. I'm usually much more liberal than that. Oh, no, 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 no. You, uh, you put me through the ringer, sir. Um, so I will call that out. And in fact... Had you stuck with your original all expansions all the time, this list might be different. But, you know, it's 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 good exercise for the soul to try to make those tough choices, and I'm pretty happy with the end results. Yeah, we're absolutely defined by the limits that are imposed on us, so it's a good thing. And, and so what criteria did you use? Was it 
was it purely sentimental? Was it utilitarian? Was it was it games that you had nostalgia for? Um, no, I would say very little nostalgia. It was purely utilitarian, as you said. I'm assuming I am stuck in this cabin for potentially the rest of my natural life. Although I suppose depending on the apocalypse in question, which again, you did not specify, the length of my natural life might be a bit variable. But you said I'm there with my wife, we're going to see it out to the end, and my number one concern was what's going to give me the most long-term experience because i'm assuming the power's out and there's literally nothing else for us to do for 10 to 12 hours a day other than play these games uh to stave off the uh, darkness of our soul so that was my number one concern and i mean it seems to me from from watching your work and listening to your show it's it seems that a long stretch of time alone with your wife in the cabin wouldn't be such a terrible hardship that's kind of the life i try to make for myself already if i'm honest uh i'm not really one to go out on the town and and paint things red as it were both jen and i are homebodies and well i I would certainly say my number one favorite pastime is watching tv if if i'm honest and my number two is playing games so uh yeah this this is De- again, depending on the particulars of the apocalypse, this might not be so bad. I mean, was it always thus? Were you always a person who liked to retreat to the indoors? Or did you have your sort of lost weekend period in your younger days? Oh, I have always been an introvert. Make no mistake. It's an easy uh, um, assumption to make that I'm a big, bubbly, outgoing, gregarious person because of my sort of stage persona, but that is not who I am at all. Uh, Actually, I guess that's not entirely true. If you want to dig deep, as a very, very young child, probably ages four to nine, I was very outgoing. But at nine, my parents moved me and my brother and themselves and our big gigantic German shepherd Boatnik onto a 42-foot steel hull sailboat that my dad had built with his own two hands with dreams of sailing around the world. And so for the next five years or so, we lived on that boat and I completely shed my early childhood notions of of going out and trying to be popular and and saying the right things to get in with the other kids and stuff like that i became a withdrawn hermit and when we eventually moved off the boat and i moved into high school well i just kind of stayed the course i was a very quiet shy withdrawn introverted kid who always had his hoodie up long before this was a cool thing. This was in the mid-80s. I was walking around with my hoodie up to sort of stay hidden and invisible and listening to Beatles on my uh, cassette tape Walkman. And um, the only thing that brought me out of my shell was, it's weird, in junior year, there was a, a bully in our honors English class, who was constantly making fun of other kids whenever Mrs. Smith stepped out for a few minutes. And one time he was making fun of Jamie Harris, who I had a major crush on. Not that Jamie had any idea of that, because I was just too quiet and quiet. Quiet and withdrawn, and so he was, you know, cruelly mocking her. And I turned around and just laid into him, and just mercilessly mocked him with my best. Monty Python wit that I could muster, having grown up uh, watching Flying Circus my whole life. And everybody was just completely dumbstruck in the classroom, because nobody expected that from me. I was just the quiet, withdrawn nerd. And it just completely shut him up. And what happened after that was, 
I can't remember his last name, but Robin, who was kind of a valedictorian, uh, jock, super smart kid, super popular kid, he saw that and he was directing the senior play that year. And he went to the principal and said, I want this kid in the lead role. And I got called into the principal's office, thought I was in trouble for the first time in my scholastic career. And the principal just said, nope, uh, you're not in trouble. You're just going to be in this play, whether you like it or not. And so I was... um, basically pulled against my will into this big, gregarious, outgoing, loud, boisterous, over-the-top role that I had to play, singing and dancing and all kinds of stuff. And that role that I played, that became the genesis of what I would call my Rado personality. But the few friends I really had knew that that wasn't me and that I still went back to being kind of quiet and shy and withdrawn. And that's still who I am to this day. But the only person I'm really like that with is my wife. And so I've spoken to a lot of people who identify as introverts and don't seem that way. How exhausting is it for someone who's an introvert to maintain that extrovert personality? Uh, I guess it is a bit exhausting, but I've been doing it now for 30 years, and I've got a fair bit of stamina. I mean, as a video game designer, it was absolutely crucial to my success because I was at a senior lead designer or creative director role for almost my entire career, which meant my number one job more than anything else was to be a cheerleader and make sure that everybody on the team was moving in the same direction and had a high level of motivation and passion and confidence for what they were doing. Yeah, it's it's just what I've been doing literally my entire adult life. It wasn't until in my mid-40s I realized, you know what, depending on how we live the rest of our lives... We could, based on my very big success in the video game industry, we could potentially retire early. And I would so much like to do that. So I can finally hang my hat or, you know, and, and walk away from this. I could be Peter Parker putting the suit in the trash can in the alley and, uh, and put it all behind me. And so we ch- gave it a try, and that lasted for less than a year. Because next thing you know, I've started doing a YouTube show where I have to get really excited and enthusiastic about board games. So I just pulled it right back out of the closet and just kept going. And I'm doing it right now with you. Well, indeed. But before we before we get into that, because I've got very detailed notes and I'm nothing, nothing if not a person that likes order. Let's go back to the beginning. So you started off, you, you sent me a LinkedIn profile. And I had a look and I'd heard you talk about this on your podcast anyway. Um, you started off as a sort of customer service operative at Nintendo. Were you always a video gamer and was working at Nintendo some sort of great opportunity, a sort of potential dream job for you? It didn't necessarily start out that way. It was very serendipitous that I happened to fall into it. To answer your first question, though, yes, I had always been into video games way back into the 70s. When I was, I don't know how old exactly, three to five, probably one of my most clear, concrete memories was playing the Sears Roebuck Pong home game system that my parents had bought. I don't know why they bought it. I guess they must have done it for Christmas or something like that. And of course, Pong, you couldn't play by yourself. My brother wasn't that into it. And so my dad would play it with me. But the thing that struck me so powerfully was at that point in my life, my dad was literally a god to me who could do anything and I could do nothing. But I remember so clearly I could beat him at Pong. Pong was the first thing in my life I was actually good at. And so 
I, you know, from that point on, video games had always been a very, very big part of my life. Uh, you know, growing up in the late '70s, as I became more and more introverted, and uh, I would spend all my time on the bus playing. I don't know if you remember. I don't know if you had them in England. Those old Mattel football and baseball portable games. There were just little LED lights. Uh, I played those things to death just to avoid the world around me. And and uh, I had a friend who had a Vectrix. I was incredibly jealous of him. I wanted a ColecoVision. It was just a very big defining part of who I was. And I, you know, I, I, because we were living on a boat, I didn't really have much in the way of a social life. And so I never got to get into... You know, Dungeons and Dragons or any of those other geeky pursuits. Actually, to this day, I have never played a pen and paper role playing game, which is amazing to me. It's just never happened. Uh, video games, big deal for me. Yes, yes. Back to Nintendo. Well, the situation there was simply that I was a student at the University of Washington in Seattle. And it was summertime and I was looking for a summertime job. And I had already done jobs, uh, doing actual customer, not, not customer service, but phone surveys. I, I had gotten a job doing that, um, you know, in the evenings and calling up people, asking them about their preference for soup or who they were going to vote for and just pestering people. I, so I, I had a lot of practice doing that, but I hated it for reasons you might imagine, because I knew everybody hated every time I uh, tried to call them. But and I had a few other odd jobs here. And then just one day in the school newspaper, in the classifieds, there, you know, this is back when you got a job off of the classifieds out of a newspaper, there is an ad for Nintendo. Do you want to be a Nintendo gameplay counselor? And I thought, oh my God, that sounds amazing. I've got this experience doing these phone calls with people who don't want to talk to me. Uh, I've got this ongoing Rada persona, uh, persona I can use if ever I need to. So I went down and applied and got the job. And it was a phenomenal job uh, for par- for part-time job for students at University of Washington. In fact, a high percentage of the my particular class of gameplay counselors were all students at the UW. And so how does someone move from a customer service operative as Nintendo to being sort of team lead on AAA video games? Through a series of misadventures, as you might imagine. It's... Um, I, I forget. I think I was in... I'd have to go back and look it up. I was in Nintendo for... Gosh, like I want to say four or five years, but that seems too long. But I was there for many years. And you're right. While my primary job was to answer the phone and give people hints and guidance to get through particular tough portions of video games, that was the customer service I provided, just you know, helping walk through games. Literally helping people run through games. Uh, how uh, prophetic was that? Anyway, I... I did it so long that I really got burned out on it, particularly because I was working the morning shift. So I had to get up every morning at 3 a.m. to get there by 4, and I worked till 1 in the afternoon. It was absolutely abysmal. I absolutely hated it. And so all of us in the call center were always looking for other jobs we could do because occasionally you could get loaned out to other departments. So for a while, I worked in Nintendo's warehouse, uh, boxing things up for shipment here, hither and yon. But uh, for a while, I worked in their testing department. I did testing for Metroid for Game Boy and the Super Nintendo football game, which I hated, but still, it was just good to get off the phones for a little bit. But the best part-time job that I could get loaned out to get off the phones for a bit was helping out on Nintendo Power Magazine. 
where I did all kinds of stuff. I did outreach to publishers. I wrote articles. I did photography. I did a ton of stuff. I did cutting and pasting because this was before anybody had PageMaker and we still had to cut and paste up the page. I mean, so I did it all. I absolutely loved that. Um, And in fact, if things had gone just a little bit differently, that might have been my life's trajectory to go into publishing, which of course would be a dead end now because does Nintendo Power Magazine even exist anymore? I'd be shocked if it does. But... There was me and one other guy who both were really, really deep in. And when and a, a full-time assistant editor position opened up, uh, it came down to me. I can't remember the other guy's name. We were both friends, but we were both really jockeying to get this position. And he ended up getting it. And I think it was because he had a kid. Maybe. I don't remember. But anyway, I was so demoralized by that. Uh, because as soon as he took that on full-time, then, oh, the Nintendo Power work started tapering off. Started tapering off. And so then I found myself back... You know, in the uh, on the phone lines, which was really miserable. So I was looking to get out and do something else. Um, when all of a sudden, a, a a a series of odd circumstances led to me being summarily fired one day with no warning whatsoever. Well, I went through a series of other jobs. Uh, you know, some mundane that had nothing to do with anything. I did all kinds of weird jobs, but I also did some specific precursor jobs. I had a friend from Nintendo who had gone on to Asymmetrics, which was founded by Paul Allen, uh, you know, taking his Microsoft Millions, and they were trying to make a multimedia programming suite. I can't remember the name of what it was called, but they had hired some people to prove that, look, you can make uh, educational entertainment software with with this platform we're creating, this kind of visual basic precursor language that we're making. And so I got hired to do that, to basically do data entry. And I, oh, let's see, I, I got a job at Aldis before they got bought out by Adobe doing tech support, regular tech support for PageMaker and Freehand, even though I'd never used these things and I was totally having to BS my way through it. But ultimately, all these various things led me to getting a... The, the head of the customer service department at Hyperbole Studios. And when I say department, I mean a department of one. Because Hyperbole had had a falling out with their publisher and had to take over tech support duties for their software. But anyway, so they hired me to basically handle all of their incoming stuff. And I ended up being there for two years. And they were a company that was part of the burgeoning... CD-ROM entertainment or video entertainment boom that happened. Uh, you know, they, they'd had a couple of moderate hits, and the longer I was there, they recognized I had such a, an encyclopedic knowledge of video games, and you know, not just having played them as a fan, but having dissected them and studied them and communicated about them for so long because I'd done this, and you know, I had the Nintendo Power background, and so they started paying more and more attention to me, even though officially my job was just answering letters, literal physical letters that were sent in the mail and whatnot, and eventually they got the rights to do X Files, the video game which was a really big deal. But the problem, and I was super excited because I was a huge fan of the X-Files, and I, this is where I was really going to get in on the ground. I was going to be the game designer on this project. You know, well, the, you know, the, Because they, they were primarily a multimedia company. They were more concerned about the video, but they knew they had to have game content. So that was going to be my gig, and it was going to be amazing. But unfortunately, Chris Carter, the showrunner on the X-Files, got into a protracted 
it was over a year long legal dispute with Fox about licensing rights. And so at the height of X-Files popularity, there was this year where there was no licensed merchandise anywhere as they were trying to renegotiate stuff. And because we fell under that umbrella, all of our income, all of our royalties we were supposed to get off the development of this game just disappeared. And month after month after month, we were all basically working for free because there was no income coming into hyperbole. And I wanted to stick it out. I stuck it out as long as I could, but eventually I had to... We we bought a house when I was in Nintendo. We needed to pay the mortgage. So I once again went looking, and that's when I noticed, this is the craziest thing, there was a full billboard on I-5 in Seattle taken out for a, hi, we're in Bend, Oregon, and we're hiring junior video game designers. I have no idea why they did this, because I never would have known. This was well before the internet. If you didn't find it in your local classifieds, you didn't know the job existed. So it was just dumb luck that they, that Eidetic had decided to cast the net throughout the entire Pacific Northwest. They had put up these billboards everywhere, and I saw one, and I called them, and I pitched myself. I pitched myself harder than I ever have before. Again, using the full-on Rado persona about how I was the best man for the job because I had so much knowledge from my years in Nintendo. I had development experience from Asymmetric and Hyperbole, and they'd be insane. Insane. They're never going to find anybody better than me. And I got the job. And that's how I became the junior designer on the most hated video game in all of history, Bubsy 3D. And so so you ended up working on big titles like Siphon Filter, but you moved on to those. And what's what's really interesting is you you have a persona you have a persona of being a you call it a care bear gamer and and Sy- and, and siphon filter is a shoot 'em up and it it's a game with violence in it do you think that there's and uh, there's constant moral panics about these sorts of things do you think there's any credence in the accusations that violent video games breed real-life violence? I wouldn't say that. I There's obviously no concrete evidence. This has been debunked over and over and over again. That there, you know, There's no direct causal link between playing a violent video game and committing acts of violence in real life. That's, that's a given. That's just silly fear-mongering. But what I do think is overlooked by the video game industry... And I was certainly overlooking it because, you know, it was in my financial interest look over it. I do think there's a certain desensitization to violence uh, that you just get kind of used to it and accepting of it. And while that will not inform what you yourself will do when presented with situations in your life, it will color your appreciation of what violence means. And you'll find, oh, is there violence in society? I guess that's no big deal. There's violence in Grand Theft Auto. You know, it's just the way things are. I'm not violent, don't get me wrong, because what turns you into a violent individual, it has nothing to do with what you do for fun. Um, you know, it has everything to do with your mental state, your your upbringing, your your financial situation, the your the uh, cultural oppression you might face based on any number of sociopolitical issues that you, you know, all those kinds of things. That's what breeds actual oh, sociopath attitudes towards violence. Video games themselves don't do it. But I do think that there is some credence to the fact that it can lead to a certain, eh, it's really not that big a deal. It's just violence. And does that ever give you pause when you think about your former work? 
If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. No, I don't think so. Because at the end of the day, I, I think I think it's a thing. I don't know. I certainly, I don't have any kind of socioeconomic academic background. I'm, 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 just some guy, I don't know that I have the wherewithal to say that it's really a problem so much as it's just a thing that happens. You know, as long as you're not actively hurting anybody, you're, you're, you're probably in the clear. I guess what could be worrisome is if you start to develop a laissez-faire attitude of, well, other people are hurt. I'm just not that bothered. I'm less inclined to be outraged by social injustice or whatever whatever it might be. I, that could be a problem. But like I said, I'm just hypothesizing. I don't really know. I can say, looking back at the kinds of games I used to make, particularly Siphon Filter, I'm a little embarrassed. Um, everybody loves that damn taser that catches people on fire. It's pretty vile. Um, you know, it is, it is making light of... You know, it's trying to present in a comic fashion the murder, uh, and horrific murder of people. And at the time, in my mid-20s, I just thought it was funny. Maybe I was a bit desensitized to it. In my mid-40s, if I were desi- if I had been 40 years old at the time, I don't think I don't think I would have found it acceptable to do that, and I would have tried to find some other compromise for the technical restrictions we were facing on the development of that game. So I've certainly changed. But what I like to think is I've matured. Every time somebody bemoans mature video game content, or more and more mature board game content, I look at it and I say, this is completely immature. There is nothing mature about this whatsoever. Um, this is made for 15-year-old boys to titter and laugh. Um, you know, that's everything in Grand Theft Auto is, is basically typifies that kind of immature maturity. And yeah, I was as guilty of it too, because at one point... My brain had not fully developed. I mean, I've seen plenty of studies that talk about how the male brain, you know, the does not finish actually developing cognitively until into your mid twenties. And so I was just a dummy. I, don't get me wrong; I can't complain because you know it led me to where I am now. Because Siphon Filter made us a lot of money, and people to this day still say, "Oh, Siphon Filter, I love that Taser, man!" So I can't complain too much. But yeah, it's I, I would certainly say it's it's all odds with with who I am today. So your first game is a game that is almost unfeasibly well received amongst the board game community, and this is Gloomhaven. So what is it? Because because when I think of you and I think of your your gaming preferences, you, you seem very much sort of slap bang in the middle of midweight Euros, and yet Gloomhaven isn't that. What is it about this game that does it for you? Well, I think 
that's again an easy misunderstanding uh, to make about me that, oh yeah, I, I just love midweight trading in the Mediterranean Euros and that's my thing and that's all I want to see. More dry, dusty German style games. And don't get me wrong, while I certainly love them because of the gameplay they offer, I don't love them because of the thematic content. I would much rather every single dry, dusty Euro on the shelves be full of high adventure and um, you know dramatic big stakes and cool exciting narratives. I, I, I love that kind of stuff. I, I, I'm a human being. Of course I do. I've made video games for over 20 years, so of course I love that stuff. And it's just very rare to find games that bridge that gap so well between high narrative and drama, daring do, with really deep, meaningful, meaty Euro-style gameplay. And Gloomhaven probably nails it better than any other game to date. And are you surprised, because I remember watching your run-through before the Kickstarter, and you you said then it was my game of the year, and then I waited for you to put it on your game of the year list, and then you didn't, and you did it the subsequent year. But are you surprised at the acclaim this game has received? Because you loved it, but it never seemed to me that it was inevitable it was going to hit number one on BGG, for instance. Well, I guess it's perhaps a bit surprising that it did so well. But I was not surprised at all that it did well. I mean, because I'd played it. I, and I, interestingly, this was one of the few games... When, when, when I do Kickstarter run-throughs, often I will have to have some interference... Um, I was about to say interference, but I meant to say interaction with the developers or the publishers because it's a prototype, it's a bit rough, the rules aren't there, I need a little bit of help to get through it, stuff like that. Um, or I just have feedback. Often I'll play a game and say, oh, dudes... This game could be something really special, but I can't believe you did that. This is terrible. I'm going to rip you apart. Do you want me to go on ahead and film this? It will hurt your campaign. Um, and they'll say, well, well, what's wrong? And I say, if you had just done this, it would be so much better. And they often say, yes, you're right. We should totally do that. Um, it's actually one of the reasons I enjoy doing Kickstarter campaigns, because I can have a really big impact. And so often that'll come up a little bit. But I ended up talking with Isaac after I'd done the video, this was before it got posted, because I, I did it a week or two before the campaign launched, and I but I'd shown it to Isaac, and he wanted to talk to me, and we ended up talking for probably five or six hours on Skype, uh, because he really wanted a lot of feedback, I mean, because it was so important to him. I mean, you know, this is such a personal expression of his artistic output, and I was one of the, I, I think at that point, one of the few people who... Um, you know, because he had lots of testers doing it who would give feedback of, well, this really doesn't feel good or this is broken. But, you know, I've got a very, very strong design background. I can wax rhapsodic about the interplay between mechanisms and how to improve things. And he wanted to pick my brain. And so we talked forever. And I actually pushed for several things that I know made it into the game. Um, but from that interaction with him, because I'd only seen a small percentage. I've only seen like, I don't know, four or five of the missions. But I knew the core gameplay of I've got a hand of cards, I have to play two cards, I have to choose a high action off of one, a low action off the other, I can't tell my teammates what I'm going to do, we have to all hope that we're in sync together at the same time and see how it comes out. I knew that was gold. It's also a game, which I absolutely loved, that tapped into a movement that I think has been catching on more and more and more in the years since then. Prior to Gloomhaven, Hanabi had been a phenomenon. Um, you know, 
I, it, it hadn't been right away. It just kind of come out and, and really just kind of disappeared. But then when it, I think when it got published in German or something like that, it got nominated and won the Spiel des Jahres, and everybody loved it. And the the single most important thing, to, you know, the definitive element that was new and exciting about Hanabi was, oh, we're working together, but I can't just come right out and tell you what you need to know. We have imperfect information. Now, more and more and more, you're seeing these kind of imperfect information cooperative games coming out, and they're all phenomenal uh, because they really ratchet up the tension and accentuate the the interplay between players. Um, and Gloomhaven happened to be on the ground floor of that. I don't think enough people give credit to the fact that two things. I'm not allowed to tell you what I'm about to play. All I can do is I, I can give you a rough idea and say, well, I'm going to try and go quick. If you want to get there ahead of me, you got to go quicker than me. And, and so we have this kind of obfuscation that means the game is less about cold, dry, hard numbers and more about a feeling, about intuition. And that lets you project yourself into that situation much more readily than uh, you know a, a Legends of Andor, let's say, which is a phenomenal fantasy cooperative game where you can just work out every little um, offshoot consequence of your decision before you actually make the decision. Um, and so I knew it was going to be a big deal because I knew this was something really fresh and different. And I had previously played Isaac's Forge War, which I thought was really brilliant as well, and um, and I felt that you know it had found like a, a small bit of success, but that was going to be he he had at that point a diehard uh, followers and and you know it had minis. And this was back in the day when everybody said, oh, all you got to do is have minis. Of course, they still say that to this day. I think that's becoming less and less true as time goes on. But there was certainly a time where minis were all but guaranteed to be, you know, box office gold on Kickstarter. So, yeah, there was a lot of stuff that made me absolutely positive. If you had asked me at the time, well, you know what? Do you think it's going to be so positive it hits number one? I might not have because there's certainly one problem with Gloomhaven, which is, while I said earlier... The core kernel of that game is so pure and elegant and brilliant. Just play two cards, choose a top, choose a bottom. That's so, that's, that's everything. And then see what the bad guys do when they play their cards. Uh, there are so many ridiculous, persnickety, dumb little rules that I wish Isaac had smoothed out that make it much t- tougher to play than it should have. So I want to go back. So I had Isaac on the show. Yeah. And we, we spoke about Forge War. Mm. And I backed Forge War on the strength of your run through. Oh dear! I hope and I didn't. I hope I didn't steer you wrong. No, absolutely not. And he he basically attributed Forge War's success to you solely. Really? And which 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 means as a result of that, you're pretty much the reason Gloomhaven exists. <laughs> How does it feel to you to be a tastemaker and to have the success of games? in your hands is that bizarre um i wouldn't say so it's certainly something that i take very seriously i will say that i am acutely aware of how much weight my opinion carries and i bitterly regret it i so do if there was one thing i could get in a time machine and go back and do related to rado runs through don't get me wrong there's a lot of things i'd go back and do better but if there's one thing related to rado runs through it would be the very first time i picked up my iphone and said what the heck let's just give it a try how hard could it be um and i did my first run through for helvetia because some people were asking for it on board game geek i don't know why after i'd done my run through and i did a pretty good job considering the limitations and all that 
I don't know why I felt obligated to spin the camera around 180 degrees and put my big fat face on screen and say, and now let me tell you what I think. I wish to God I had a foresight of Rodney Smith and just not done that and not created this expectation that, oh yeah, Rod will uh, you know, give his personal opinion about the game. <clears throat> because the whole point of my show is I work really hard to try to capture the essence of what the game feels like to play so that you, the viewing audience, can decide for yourself whether it's right for you. Because who cares? If Jen and I had fun, we're just two random data specs. I mean, yeah, certainly I, I would say I have an educated opinion uh, because of my background and all of that and you know the, the high volume of games I play, but I'm still just some dude who plays a lot of games. You, sh- I mean, I'm not you. I haven't walked a mile in your shoes. I don't know if it's going to work for you. Watch the run-through. My whole design of the show is to give you the impression that you have ridiculously hairy forearms and that you are playing the game yourself. And so you can make your own decision because I realize how ridiculously expensive these games are. So that's why I am always, always quick to downplay anybody putting any credence to my... To my opinions, I, you know, nothing drives me more nutty when then people say, "How dare Rado call himself a reviewer? Look how stupid he is, or how he got this wrong." My first response is, "Dude, I don't call myself a reviewer. I am a run througher. I have told my audience a bajillion times, don't even watch the final thoughts." And I have to admit. I am very happy that probably only about 20% of the viewing public ever watch my Final Thoughts videos at all. Because I know that what I say could make or break something. Um, or at least something that's like kind of on the edge. Uh, you know, I mean- so I want to I go on to, to Rado Runs Road. I want to talk about... Because it's obviously a thing now. It's, it's, it's established. And I was thinking about this today, that you're one of the sort of pioneers of board game media. There were certainly people before you, but you've been around a long time and you're established. But what was the initial... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill idea, the initial reason that you started doing it. Why did you pick up the iPhone? Oh, it was entirely 100% capitalist commercial. I want mine, Jack. Um, the, The situation was I had just finished whatever it must be. You can look at LinkedIn, 20, 25 years of working ridiculous 60 to 80 hour weeks for the majority of the year for 20 or for more than two decades. And I had quit. I was burned out. I had lost, by that point, my lifelong love of video games. I, just, I, I haven't actually played any video games seriously since the second Batman Arkham game, the, one, the first Free Roaming. That's the last video game I've played seriously in any, in any way. And I can't imagine for the rest of my life I'll ever play one again. I, I just have zero interest in it. A big part of that was discovering board games and finding it was so much more in compelling to play those with my wife than to play video games with random randos on the internet. But uh, we decided 
I was burned out. I couldn't keep doing it anymore. We'd made enough money. We had very proactively saved every cent. We, my wife and I are the cheapest people you're ever going to meet. Um, we scrimp and scrape every step of the way. We don't have kids. And we decide, yeah, I'm going to go for early retirement. But there's only one way it can happen because I do have one very expensive habit. And at that point, I was spending three to five thousand dollars a year on new video or board games, um, and I was not going to be able to continue doing that if I wanted to retire early. And I knew it, and I did not want to stop playing because I love. I'm a total cult of the new devotee. I love new experiences. I mean, I, I, I mean, don't go wrong. I, I like going back and really digging deep and playing the same game over and over again. I've certainly done that. I've certainly done that with Gloomhaven. But I love new stuff, and I was bummed that I'd have to give it up. And I realized that um, Tom Vassell, at that point, was getting most of his games for free because he was really popular. And I thought, well, you know what? Everything I've ever set my mind to, I've succeeded at. Maybe I could see at this and I'll be as popular as Tom and publishers will start sending me games for free. And my um, home retirement life will work out well. Hooray! And that is why I did it. Um, that, or at least that was my motivation. I wanted to be able to get free games. Which, it's funny, everybody tells you, don't. if you just want free games, don't go into the YouTube game. you got to do it because you love it. you got to do it because you're passionate. And I'm here to be a counter-argument to that. I didn't do it because I loved it. I'm a quiet, introverted, shy guy. I did it because I wanted some free cheddar. And and so has that changed since? Has that changed now? Where you are with the channel? It because obviously, obviously, you must get a lot of free games now. Oh yeah, yeah. Do you do you do the channel for another reason, or is it or is it still purely capitalistic, financial? You know, Patreon has enabled you to make you know a reasonable salary. Now. Yes, I would um, be lying if I didn't say. Even all these years later, I'm still primarily motivated by capitalist drives. But it has changed. I mean, you're right. 90, 95% of all the games I play are sent to me by publishers. Uh, granted, a lot of them are prototypes, and they'll never actually send me a final copy. And for the record, publishers never pay me. I keep, people keep say, assuming that I'm a shill and that I'm on the take because I'm always too positive or everything. To my strong spy is, no, I only play good games. It's not that hard if you read the rules ahead of time to figure out if a game is good or not. Um, spend a little bit of time doing it instead of just making impulse purchases and you'll find you never have to play a bad game in your life. I certainly don't, or I play very few. Sorry, that's as an aside. That's a Reddit argument. Um, but what has changed is... I moved back to the States, and I have found that our cost of living has ballooned voluminously because... The reason we moved back to our to the States is because my mom is in her 70s. She has very critical medical issues, and she couldn't live on her own anymore out in the middle of the woods. And so we moved back here, moved into a little tiny... Um, what do you call them? Uh, trailer park? It's not a trailer park. It's a manufactured home that we bought on the super duper cheap because we are still cheap cheap people moved my mom in here so we could help her deal with you know all of her medical needs and all of that and because we're back in America we no longer have socialized medicine and we have to pay for our health care and that's crazy stupid expensive and um, I need to work 
I, at this point, I can no longer, even if I was willing at this point to never play a new board game for the rest of my life, which was my original thing. Hey, um, our cost of living in Europe is crazy low, stupidly low, um, because we're cheap and because of things like socialized medicine. So we can do this. But I just need to be able to get games because I don't want to give up on games. I need to have some income. Let it just be games. It is now switched to, oh, we're back in America. Things are crazy expensive. I need to go back to work. And my options are, Go back to the video game industry, which I could totally do. I could probably get a job in a heartbeat. I still get job offers all the time. A year ago, uh, they contacted me to be the lead on um, Fable 4 when they were starting that up in the Midlands. And I said, no, sorry. I'm done. Although, man, that was tempting. That was super tempting, I have to admit, Um, to go back and finish what I wanted to do. But anyway, um, I need a job. I didn't want to go back to my old job. This is a pretty good job. So that's when I started up the Patreon campaign and really kind of got more serious about it. And uh, it's my nine to five now. Or, well, not really that. It's, I don't know. I don't know if I'm quite back up to 60 hours a week like I used to. But at least if I am, I'm doing it of my own volition as opposed to a responsibility to some publisher who gave the company I work for millions of dollars and there's potentially billions on the line and everybody's job riding on whether I do my job right or not. I'm much happier and more comfortable with, no, it's just me in my little room uh, playing games with my wife, which I love, and then filming it, which I could take or leave. So what's you what's, what I've noticed about certain content producers not just in games but in in other areas is that they give a lot of themselves when they engage with their listeners and their viewers and and especially on your podcast you know you do a lot of you talk a lot about your personal life do, do you think that that's a contributing factor to the success of Rado runs through as you know, your fans feel like they know you and they have a sort of investment in who you are as a person. Oh, I would say so. Definitely, definitely. Uh, you know, that's that's a huge key to success. I mean, not just in online YouTubery, but just in life. I remember back in the day having heated arguments with my fellow designers and developers and, you know, they were taking the narrative and story don't matter. It's just the gameplay because we're pure and it's, it's all about that. And I'm sure there's plenty of Euro designers who feel that way right now. And I think that's so short-sighted because human beings, if there's one thing about our society that binds us all together, it's the love of story. I mean, we were Telling is one of the first things we did that drove our evolution away from apes is telling each other stories and developing communication and cave paintings and all the rest of it. It's it's so woven into our DNA. It's so important that anything in life can be improved if it comes with a compelling story. And my go-to example was always, yeah, you could go to a restaurant and open up the menu and um, find whatever sounds delicious and get a really amazing meal. And and be really satisfied by that. But you know what? If you open that menu and on the first page, there's a story about how Mama came from the old country with her with her book of recipes and you know, got stopped at the border and this and that and the other. And you tell a story about how uh, you know it's a person or it's a family that's behind this place you find yourself in. You suddenly have such an emotional and visceral connection with the meal you're about to have. It goes from being delicious to exquisite. 
And you know that's no different to watching somebody on YouTube. If you really know them, if you feel like you, you've learned so much about their life that um, you know they're a friend, of course you're going to appreciate it more. Now I don't do it because I know that it's a it's a sweet sweet step to success. I, I did that because. In all honesty, it's just kind of part of my Rado persona going all the way back to high school because I realized that, oh, suddenly, overnight, I went from being um, somebody that no one had any expectations of to being the life of the party. What I very quickly learned is through... I probably just a trial and error was, you know what, uh, best way to entertain people is to make a fool of yourself and just tell them um, silly things about dumb stuff that's happened to you. Um, and, uh, you know, and be shameless. You know, that's kind of a primitive form of shock comedy. And so I started doing it. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, people are like, oh my God, I can't believe you're telling me that too much information type stuff. But I, I just found it was, it was just easy. It's so easy just to tell people about you with a comic spin and they'll love it. And it's a great way to fill the silence if you're called upon to be the entertaining guy. So I thought rather than have you listen to two minutes of uninformed blather from me talking about Yinchi, the new game for pre-order from Spielworks, I'd speak to someone who actually knew what they were talking about. So here is Luis, the designer of the game. Well, Yinzi is a, a hero game, a heavy style hero game uh, that will play for about two hours, two hours and a half. Uh, thematically, the game is uh, situated in the, um, in the Ming Empire, the late Ming Empire in the early 17th century. Players uh, are uh, rich clans that are uh, thriving to, to, to get richer in, 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 this, um, in this period. So the game is basically an economic, uh, pure economic game with, um, with a action selection slash worker placement mechanism that we think that is uh, quite original and clever and that people will like. This main mechanic system uh, goes around a deck of 12 cards that everyone, every player has and it is um, a unique deck. Every, Every player has the same deck of cards. The thing is, the deck is shuffled and each turn each, uh, every player will draw cards and they'll have the th- their, those three cards to play on their turn. So every player at the end of the game will play the same 12 cards, not necessarily in the same order because the, the, all cards will be played but the draw of the cards will uh, dictate the, the kind of actions that the player will try. So it's kind of an optimization game, it's an economic game that has an optimization mechanism you will try to make the best with the cards that you have. So, and these are the cards that will dictate what you can do. The players will start with farms, planting and selling goods. Later on, the game evolves and players want to build industries. These industries will get bigger. Um, they will occupy space on the board, so you have less plantations available in industries. And this game um, simulates very well the growth of the economic system in in China. So for those that like heavy, thinky, meaty games, this is right, right, right up their alley. And if that sounds interesting, you can pre-order Yinchi 
by going to spielworks.de. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Are there any areas that you won't go into? Um, do you have any limits uh i don't but my wife does she is very she's quite the opposite of me i mean it's been very difficult for her to come to terms with the fact that i am so open and honest with uh certainly my podcast listeners more than anything else and and she's on the show too and so she has to be open and honest just by association because it's kind of expected it's very difficult for her because she wants to keep private things private and there's a few things that she will keep private no matter what and you know we've talked about it and I was, okay honey pie we're never going to talk about that the most obvious one being our finances so there's a few things like that otherwise no i don't i, I personally don't have any filters there's no reason to who cares you only live once so moving on then your next game is a game again i i think is a game that uh i was inspired by one of your videos to buy oh i i apologize and no, I love it. It's a great game. It, it's a complete bastard, but it's a great game. And this is Shadowrun Crossfire. Oh, good for you. Excellent. What? How does this game transcend the standard deck builder? Ooh, that's a good question. I could just say, watch my final thoughts. I'm sure I waxed rhapsodic about it there. Um, let's see. It's certainly not the setting. Uh, I'm, I'm largely indifferent to the uh, cyberpunk fantasy thing. I think it's it's neat, but I've, I've never cared about it one way or the other. I would I would have rather just gone pure cyberpunk or more point, more to the point, pure fantasy when it boils right down to it. It's 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 such a brilliant devious puzzle. It's it is the pure encapsulation of what. I personally enjoy about board games more than anything else. I would much rather play a cooperative game than a competitive game any day of the week. My wife prefers competitive games. Um, I think because having to work with me slows her down. But uh, but she enjoys co-ops too, don't get me wrong. We started on Pandemic after all. But I love working cooperatively with somebody else. It's, my absolute, it's what I did professionally for 20 years. And um, the fact that the odds are so against you. It is so overwhelming. It seems so impossible. And to be fair, for a lot of players, I know it is frustratingly impossible to win. Because the only way you're going to win at Shadowrun is to unlearn everything you've ever learned by playing any other co-op game. Uh, You have to be so counterintuitive to the way that you play, to the priorities you give, to the threats, and um, what you choose to buy. And everything is on a razor's edge. One wrong mistake will destroy you. But every time, it will be your mistake. It won't be the game. The game is fair. When everybody says, you know what, oh, when a card gets drawn and there's literally nothing I can do to defeat this card, it's impossible. It's just, oh, draw a card and lose that's broken design what those people don't understand is you lost that game four rounds ago when you made a choice that left you in the situation where you weren't able to handle that card that just popped up 
That's the beauty of the game. Uh, and, and I absolutely love it. I love the super high difficulty level. Although, again, I mean, I'm to probably better than 50% win ratio now. I'm not up to the designers themselves who are at 90% uh, because they know the game so well. It's very satisfying to have gotten better at it. But um, the also, I mean, there's so many little tricks in the game I love. I love the abort system. If you consider an abort a win, then I have an almost 100% win record. Because, you know, I love how uh, things aren't going well. We might be able to turn... Oh, no, we cannot turn this around. It's time to change our strategy and prepare to survive the abort. Because I'm going down in two rounds. There's nothing we can do to stop it. And um, so we have to prepare you to be able to survive all these guys jumping on you so that you can pull me, my limp body, out of the fire and get us away to safety. That is... I mean, that's almost... a more exciting ending to a game or a session of Crossfire than actually winning is winning by abort and we love it so much and on top of that I love legacy games I love games that put me in a situation where I have to make long term irreparable decisions where I can't go back I can't load up my save game and go try to do something else no that decision I made for how I'm going to level myself up is permanent because I used a sticker and that adds so much weight and gravitas uh, and it just it, 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 you know, it, it makes me hurt inside but in a good way when I'm making that decision and hoping I'm making the right one it, it's just a phenomenal absolutely amazing experience so moving on, you're an, you're an expert here, both in video games and board games. So firstly, you lived through the boom of video games, through the 80s, into the 90s, into the 2000s. How did it happen? How did video games become such an integral part of our cultural context? Wow. Uh, that's a really interesting thing. Um, hmm. I'm I'm not a historian, I'm afraid. I can't really say that I've given too much thought to it. I, I lived through it. But, you know, I would certainly say the first boom of video games, you know, the Pac-Man era, that was... People say, oh, it was a boom and a bust. But it, it was never a boom. It was a fad. You know, there was a time when pet rocks were the thing. And everybody in the country had a pet rock. And there were commercials on major networks about rocks with googly eyes on them. And you know, fidget spinners. Uh, uh, fidget spinners is a excellent. Animal, yeah. There is no reason fidget spinners should have been what they were, and they lasted as long as they should, considering what they are actually offer in terms of any kind of experience. And then they disappeared. Same thing happened with video games in the first rush. They were a fad. Pac-Man Fever made the top 10 Billboard charts. I bought the Pac-Man Fever album. I still remember the lyrics to all those songs. And um, you you would find uh, you know Dig Dug and Centipede machines in every bar and every restaurant in America. And but you know there were limitations to what the video game art form could provide at that point. And eventually, it got to where, okay, well, we're not evolving any faster. We're not giving you anything new. We've we've hit the same way the fidget spinner eventually... Okay, oh, let's put lights on it. And, oh, now let's put animated lights on it. And what else can we do with this fidget... Let's do a double fidget spinner. They go in opposite directions. Eventually, you're going to run out of stuff you can do with fidget spinners, and they're going to die. We, you know, we ran out of technology for video games, and they died. They curled up and died. Uh, and then... Nintendo, and to a lesser extent Sega, came along a few years later and pushed the envelope forward to the point where, okay, now with the NES, 
um, we have an evergreen system that can continue to grow and can continue. It, it is boundless in what it can actually provide because it, because we have enough um, we have enough chips on the motherboard to be able to do whatever we can imagine, provided the player is uh, you know has a, a certain suspension of disbelief. That was certainly not the case earlier. There was only so much that could be done with um, you know a motherboard in a centipede box. Um, and so, uh, video games continue to evolve. And as long as video games can continue to grow and evolve and provide more, they're never going away. In the same way that books have never gone away. Because there's no limit to what a book can do. And as time goes on, I mean, we, we're living now through a renaissance of TV because technology has gotten to the point where um, you can have the highest production values in the world on you know, a bog-standard TV show. That, you know, production values that were unthinkable 20 years ago in major AAA motion pictures. And so, TV is at a point where they can continue to push boundaries and continue to give new and interesting and exciting experiences. And as long as they can continue doing that, they will only continue growing. Board games are there. Um, in a way that I don't think the original video games were. Video games originally hit a wall because of the limitation of technology. Literally, I am making this up as I go. I have never given any thought to this until you asked me this question, uh, for the record. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing a grand job. <laughs> I, well, like I said, that, that's my skill. That's why I was a good cheerleader when I was a video game developer. I could just come up with anything that needed to be said just to get through the day. Um, but that said, I believe what I'm saying with passion. It's part of why I can sell it. Um, board games... I don't know, maybe there is going to be some kind of unforeseeable wall that they will hit the same way that early video games did, but I don't imagine what it is because board games have something that video games didn't. Video games primarily and predominantly were a solo activity. And they could only, in terms of a two-way communication between you and the box, there was only so much that could be done. There was only so much I could say to the box. There was only so much the box could say to me, and then we'd run out of places to go. Um, video games aren't like that anymore. Uh, you know, with the advent of the Wii, you've got motion sense. I mean, uh, you know, we we have. Well, it looks like we're now. Um, what do you call it? The, uh, the VR was riding a high. It looks like it's falling now again, which is really sad. But still, something will take its place. Augmented reality or whatever. There's still new and exciting things to do. I think board games aren't going to run into this problem because, as I said, video games were solo, so you just had to have this one-way communication with the box. Board games are not. Board games are a social activity. And as long as people have other people in their lives that they want to share experiences with... Board games will never run out of ways to be able to continue to evolve and offer new and exciting and novel experiences. I suspect that's the case. So video games now for a long time have been talked about in the way novels are talked about, in the way painting is talked about and music is talked about. They've been considered art. And there are some people who are starting to talk about, talking this way about board games. Is this something you welcome? Or do you think it has no place in commenting on that? Oh, I think it's fantastic. Uh, I think there are certainly ample examples of board games as art. 
there's been an explosion of them just in the last few years. This war of mine and and fog of love and and then we held hands. I mean, these are beautiful, moving and touching experiences that you get to share with your loved ones. And there's no other medium in the world that would let you share them. Video games can't do it quite the same way because video games, if even if I wanted to share a deep and meaningful emotional journey with you because you're a loved one to me, when you and I are playing a video game trying to get that, we are both looking at a screen. And that screen is a barrier between us looking at each other. Board games don't have that. Uh, when my wife and I play and then we held hands, and it's, all, it's another one of those imperfect information co-op games, which I just love to death, um, everything about that experience is me reading her and understanding her and trying to get into her head. That's, what, that's why Hanabi is so successful, and it's beautiful. Um, you know, that's why Dixit is such a wonderful party game, um, or code names, or what have you. And so, no, I, I think art, which my, I guess my personal definition of art is it's a medium that the creator is using to express their views of the world and engage in a dialogue with the viewer. Because the viewer can then use that as a means of interpreting, reevaluating, or reaffirming their own view of the world. To me, that's the fundamental job of art. And yeah, uh, board games uh, can and should be doing that. Your next game is a a classic, and it's a classic from a man who's considered maybe the archetypal Euro game designer. And this is Trajan from Stefan Feld. And he is el- held up by the people who malign Euro games as being the sort of architect of the dry Euro. Do you think he's unfairly maligned in? Indeed, yes. I believe when people say that, they are, uh, disappointingly, and I don't say this with malice, but rather just, you know, an observation that people are betraying their own lack of imagination when they say that. Um, When I play a Feld game, I am very easily thrust into a world where I am making decisions that represent the decisions I would make if I were, well, let's be honest, a uh, mid-level bureaucrat. Um, Now, don't get me wrong. That is not the most exciting and sexy role to be thrust into, but it is certainly what most Euros do. We are, uh, we're bean counters, we're number crunchers, we're middle management, and we have to find ways to get, to get our projects successfully to completion, i.e. earn the most victory points. That is but the recognizing role recognizing patterns and solving problems is, is deeply satisfying, no? Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, totally, totally. Um, but for me, maybe it's because of my background, that is what I did professionally for 20 years. Was I mean, Maybe it's because I come from an industry where my job was implicitly creative in nature. It was all about creative problem solving. It was less about the creative genesis of whatever new idea was going to go into the game. It was more about, ah, we've hit the limit of our memory. Uh, We have to cut half this level. How can I solve this problem? Don't worry, I'll come up with a creative solution. That's what board games have you do. It's what I loved most about my job as a designer, and it's what I love about a good solid Euro. <clears throat> but to me, they are not. What's the acronym? It's um, J-A-S-E, Just Another Soulless Euro. It's a Jace. You know, tra- you know, Trajan, it's a Jace. Burgundy, it's a Jace. I'm like, 
All right, if that's how you want to think of it, but when I play Trajan, you know, again, I feel, or you're a Tribune, I think, or you're you're some you know mid-level patrician. You know, again, you're a middle manager whose job is to realize the dreams of the Emperor Trajan, and you do that by deploying agents, getting them into the right position at the right time, so they can do their job, so you can complete whatever what, one of several projects that you're all balancing at once. Uh, whether you're trying to you know maintain influence in the Senate, or you know direct military campaigns in Europe, or um, rebuild the city after you know the destruction and all of that. I feel, even though it's very abstract, I'm just moving some little colored things around on a Moncala. To me, that level of abstraction still thematically represents the kinds of decisions I would have to make. Right, um, we're out of memory on this particular level. Uh, tell you what, why don't we take it off of you, um, Charlie, and give it over to Joe uh, because he can actually repurpose it based on the other level he did here, and that frees you up, Charlie, for this other level that nobody's even touched yet. You know, I mean, trying to juggle your resources, getting the right people to the right place at the right time so you can achieve what you need to achieve. That is what a producer does. And that's what you do in every Steffenfeld game. And it's incredibly satisfying, as you said, just as a puzzle-solving exercise. There's a reason people love Sudoku. Um, And sure, Sudoku, I suppose, is a dry, soulless exercise. It doesn't mean it's not incredibly satisfying to do. But for me... Feld games are not dry because I put myself in the role that he has created. Because if you pay attention to the little things, you know the the, the you know the the names of tracks that don't even have to have names. They are named and patterned after things that would be in real life. Whether it's you know working up your influence in the Senate, they could just call that an initiative track, but they don't. They call that a Senate track because it's all about your influence over senators who will give you first dibs on stuff. That makes thematic sense. Now. Fair enough. If it's a role you don't enjoy or want to roleplay, I totally get that. But it is a role. It is a juicy role. It is a thematic role. I'm sorry, I've totally lost track if that answered your question, but that's how I look at it. That's absolutely fabulous. So how does Trajan exemplify Feld? Well, I mean, there's certainly what I just talked about. But in addition to that, there is... I think what, there's a few things he does really, really well. Um, one is uh, player scaling on his games is absolutely amazing. When I see so many Euros that were clearly designed with four players in mind. And, oh yeah, by the way, yeah, you can play it too. And we did a, a little half-ass scaling to try and make sure that works. Nothing drives me more batty. When oh, If you'd just done a little bit more work, it could have been amazing. It could have been just as much fun as a two-player, but you just didn't do the work. Fell does the work, because as I understand it, all of the personal testing he does on his games is with his wife, um, who is a diehard, avid gamer like him. So for him, the two-player experience is always the most important thing, because he's trying to make sure his wife enjoys it. Um, and then he has people he trusts to test at higher play or counts and all that. I love that. But the most important thing, the most defining characteristic of a Feld game is, uh, I think I've mentioned a few times, spinning plates. 
I've got all these plates spinning on the end of dowels. I don't know why in the 70s this was a major form of entertainment on late night t- Johnny Carson shows. Oh my gosh. It used to be on it used to be on British TV all the time. It's completely inexplicable. No idea. I, I, yeah, but apparently it was compelling and I can certainly confirm it is compelling to actually be in the middle of it, knowing that there are what what people often um, derisively uh, refer to as point salads. Ah! You can get points doing anything, so therefore nothing means anything, because it doesn't matter what you do, you'll get points. That is such a myopic perspective, because success in a Feld game is, is, is not about just doing the basics. It is about keeping, well, first of all, of the six plates that are available to you, choosing which two or three are going to provide you the, the, the best return on your investment, and then keeping those running while also doing whatever you need to do on the other side stuff. Uh, because I guarantee you, anybody who says, yeah, a Feld game doesn't matter. You just get points no matter what you do. So just do whatever. I guarantee you, they will lose every time to somebody who understands about prioritization um, and you know the, the nature of spinning plates. I remember the first time I played Trajan. It was the first Euro game that I bought. Oh my goodness. I, I like you, started with Pandemic. And I played it with a group of computer programmers. Oh my and goodness. I'm, I'm an actor, and so my brain doesn't work in that way. (laughs) And I was summarily destroyed (laughs) to the point I didn't play it for a year, and it sat on my shelf sort of grinning at me (laughs) until I felt like I could go back to it. And it's it's certainly true that, yeah, it requires skill. It it is about the limitations of what you can do. So, So where do you think Stefan Feld ranks in the pantheon of board game design? Oh, he's my number one. Easily, my—I mean, nobody comes close. Uh, you know, there are maybe someday somebody will take his throne, but I mean, I, we just just was it? Oh, today's Tuesday. So just last week we played a, um, Carpe Diem for the first time, and just both were instantly uber smitten with it uh, because again, it just does everything I just talked about so wonderfully. Oh, another core thing about a Feld design that's so important is no matter what's going on, no matter how crazy the simulation seems with all these different levers you can pull and plates that have to spin, um, it's all driven by, at its core, a very simple and clever little mechanism. In the same way I talked about Gloomhaven, everything comes down to pick two cards and a top and a bottom. That's the whole game right there. Um, you know, Balancing that hand management and, and those needs. And um, Feld always does that. Whether it's the cube tower maintenance in uh, Marigo, or the Moncala in Trajan, um, or the dice drafting tile laying in um, in Burgundy, or you know any of them, they always have something that's cool, uh, but simple and pure. And I, I just respect the hell out of that. And nobody does it better than him. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Day to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Forum Treanum. You you choose a tile. You take the resources. You build a building. And what emerges from what emerges from that is absolutely glorious. Exactly. I I just played it. It's absolutely astonishing yep. but you forgot the beauty of that game is you have two tiles you pick one and you give one to your opponent right they give absolutely. you one and then you have to pick that is the kernel of that game and it's so delicious i don't think he's done that before i mean he did in notre dame he did have card drafting but that was kind of more uh prototypical card drafting whereas i mean form to oh that i can't give this to you but i don't want it oh my god Oh my god, what have you done, Feld? You've done it again. You bastard. Genius. So I want to talk to you now about something you're very... We, we referred to it before. You're very assertive when it comes to your play style in that you don't like games in which you're mean to other people. You like games of mutual benefit. And do you think that this stems from the fact that you play board games primarily with someone you love, so you don't want to cause them pain. No, not at all, actually, because I am just as conflict-averse when I'm playing with a complete stranger. Even if I'm playing with somebody I don't particularly like, I fundamentally can derive no satisfaction, no enjoyment from the kicking down of their sandcastle. Uh, you know, it, it, certainly that's true for my wife, but it's true for anybody I would play with. It's just kind of something, something about me. And so, what what purpose do you see conflict having in games, and why is it so attractive to people? Um, I don't know. You you'd have to ask those people. Um, I'd, I I can only speaking for myself. I'm a very empathetic person, and I really spend a lot of my time and mental energy concerning myself with the needs and wants and issues of other people. I tend to put them above my own, and it's just kind of hardwired into me. It's certainly a reflection of my upbringing because my my parents have always been the same way, and um, so, yeah, it's... I, I, that, it, that is reflected in my aversion to destroying your stuff. Other people take, you know, I mean, it, there's a term for it. It's schadenfreude. I, it, it's a thing. It exists. It is a clinical, psychological attribute that people have. Um, you know, it's 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 a big enough part of the human experience that the Germans came up with a, a very... Uh, weird sounding word for it to derive enjoyment from the suffering of others and you know what I don't know is it hardwired into us as a species we are definitely tribal Uh, there's no two ways about it the tribal nature of humanity is what has gotten us where we are uh, you know in terms of our modern society for me tribalism is something that as a species we could definitely get rid of now we have no use for it. No need for us versus them. Me versus you. Um, screw them. They support the other football team. Trash their town. Whatever silliness and ridiculousness. But, uh, you know, at some level, it's hardwired into our DNA. 
Uh, just like I was talking about earlier, I was talking about the positive things hardwired in our DNA as a species. We are all about communication more so than anything else, more than any other species um, in, in, on the planet. But we are we are tribal creatures, and I think someone's ability to enjoy destroying something that somebody else worked really hard on. All I can say is, to me, that's unthinkable. I don't understand how somebody can enjoy that. Um, but a lot of people can. Uh, smarter men than me, smarter men or women than me would have to answer that question. Yeah, and so you see it in arts. You see it in culture. You see it... I, I, I feel like society is becoming more conservative by the day. Do you find it weird that there is often an uproar in game commentary about a game that deals with sex or a game that has four-letter words in it, and yet there is almost no comment when the basis of your game is essentially mass murder. Hmm, it is weird. There's, it's definitely weird. There's no two ways about it. But again, that's not unique to board games. That's just... Well, f- for the most part, that's... I'm not going to say that's unique to American society, but that's certainly a big part of American society, more so than other societies and cultures around the world. And, you know, that has everything to do with the DNA of the founders of this country. I mean, because we were predominantly um, founded by a bunch of Puritans who were um, sticks in the mud and wanted their own damn country where things would go their way. And, oh, please, let's not talk about sex anymore. Can we please just not do that? Because that's a sin in the eyes of God, don't you know? And so, yeah, it's certainly so ridiculous um, that we have these weird backwards moral values as to what is acceptable as fun entertainment. But eh, it is what it is. So it's, uh, it's part of the human condition. Um, yeah, I don't know, dude. Do you see there's a Do you see there's a culture in America? I, I've been thinking about this and why America is prone to more violence than. Than, than many other countries sort of in Western Europe, in, in the Western world at least. Do you think there's a culture of righteous violence in America? When I when I look at superheroes and when I look at the you look at the classic Western hero, there's this notion that violence is okay if it's righteously motivated. And you couple that with individuality. Do you do you think that's a plausible theory? Oh sure, I would say so. I what you just said May, uh, having not really thought about this to tell you much, what it pops into my head is the fact that America is a very young country. America um, is like a teenage boy at this point compared to older, richer cultures, um, European cultures, African cultures, Asian cultures, um, you know, Native American cultures as opposed to uh, modern American cultures. Um, we are still in our terrible twos. We're still teething. We think it's cool to um, solve our problems with violence because of the American mythos of one of our manifest destiny to take this entire land. It was given to us by God. So, of course, we're going to take it from whoever was here already. And we're going to take it at the end of a gun because that represents our individuality and our um, superiority and divine providence. And, you know, so as a culture, we still hold on to that. American culture has never suffered in any significant... Again, modern American culture. Of course, Native American culture has suffered in innumerable ways at our hands. But uh, modern American culture hasn't had World War I or World War II happen at its doorstep. 
you know, um, has not faced, um, you know, centuries of, of cruelty and inhumanity. We've had one moderately significant blip, which was 9-11. And we went apeshit over it. Um, and you know, one could argue we had a very immature response to that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, Europe... Uh, you know, everything that you've been through for for a millennia now, I think you are a more mature and um, well-reasoned society and culture. I, I think that probably has a big part to do with it. So your next game is Lagrania. Firstly, why are you taking this to the cabin? Um, it is being brought because it's a real kitchen sink. It, uh, you know, origin, my first thought was I was going to bring uh, Glory to Rome. Because it has near infinite replayability, and it, it never fails to surprise you. It's uh, it's 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 a marvel of of design efficiency. But I only got to have five games, and the Granha has a big part of what makes, um, uh, what did I say? Oh, glory, glory to Rome. Um, but then it also throws in dice drafting, and it throws in tiling. And, you know, it throws in goods conversion and, you know, and a bunch of other stuff as well. So, yeah, it was really more than anything else. The Ditches does a lot of things very well. But originally it came from me considering, should I bring Race for the Galaxy? Should I bring Glory to Rome? Should I bring some kind of really deep card game? And I ultimately I decided, no, I'll bring in, but I'll bring in one that was inspired by that. But that gives me a lot more. Because I realized, wait, dice drafting is my favorite mechanism of all time, and I don't have any dice drafting, and the dice drafting in the Grand is awesome. So, no-brainer. Let's bring it. So why are multi-use cards so good? Uh, because they are an incredibly brilliant and elegant way to easily represent a huge possibility space. Um, it's it's Multi-use cards are what I rave about in Gloomhaven. Not the storytelling, not the the world building. It's the multi-use cards in, um, in Gloomhaven that, that makes it so special. Because I'm not holding a hand of five cards. I'm holding a hand of 20 cards. Because each one of these cards can be used in five di- four different ways. Is that right? Five to four, 20, yeah. And, um, and that's just awesome. I, you know, giving me, but it's still very confining. You know, I could do anything I want, but I can only play one of them. And to play one of them, I got to get rid of another one. Ah! You know, that's what I love more than anything else. Really tough, agonizing decisions. And they're just a way to kind of take a really big possibility space, but just ground it down into a diamond. Um, You know, over... It's because it's 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 so much in such a small space. That's that's what's amazing about it. So I want to talk now about the future. So you move back to America, and sort of you you've had the sort of health insurance issues that are very different to Europe. I mean, how has the transition from living so long in Europe, and especially somewhere like Malta, which is sort of completely unique, how is it moving back to America? Do you, does it was it a homecoming or or did you feel like an an alien stepping into a foreign world? Not really. I mean, it was like stepping into a warm bath because life is so easy in America. Americans have no idea how good they've got it. Just how everything about this society and culture is done to streamline and uh, smooth out. Certainly. Consumer activities. Um, Amazon Prime 
is the goddamn 10th wonder of the world. It's absolutely ridiculous. When we got back here and I'm setting up my little studio, I'm like, oh, okay, I need another light or I need um, a different type of mic. Okay, I'll, I'll just order on Amazon. Oh, it's here for free in a couple of days. And oh, yeah, that didn't work out. I'll just put it in the box and they'll send it and they'll take it back for free. No questions asked. That's insane. That's stupidly insane. That's unthinkable. But they can do it because of their monopolistic practices. And it's, uh, you know, you, you can't get stuff like that. Um, having lived in. Europe for so long, we were used to, oh, yeah, um, all the stores are just closed randomly in the middle of the day. You can't really be sure when. Um, open on Sunday or open after 6 p.m.? Get out of here. What are you, what are you, crazy? Um, you know, I, I lived in, I've lived in Austria and Germany for the last 15 years, and it took me probably eight years to not leave the house Sunday morning and then find myself swearing at the top of my voice in front of a supermarket because it's closed. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that's something we got used to. But coming back here and um, I want some ice cream. It's 11 o'clock at night. Eh, no problem. I'll just drive down to the local store and pick some up. No problem. It's, it's only five minutes away. Um, or you know, I, I want this. I'll just buy it online and it'll be here in two days and uh, for free for less than if I'd actually gone down to the store and bought it in person. And, you know, that's that's just awesome. Uh, it's, it's everything is just easy and smooth, provided you've got money. Um, and, uh, thanks to the backs of my show, I can afford to do that kind of stuff within reason. I certainly can't buy board games. Although even board games are so cheap here. So stupidly cheap here. When I like, I get such a kick out of seeing Americans complain about a $45 game or a, or a $70. $70? That's unreal. Dude, come on. Have you seen how much we have to pay? Have you seen how much Australians have to pay? You got nothing to complain about with your $70 game. Get out of here. Um... Yeah, so it's just nice. And of course, we'd lived most of our life in America. So um, I don't think we'd been gone long enough to where it was a culture shock for us to come back. It, like I said, it was just like stepping back into a warm bath. What's the future for Rado Runs Through? Now it's become sort of a proper job rather than a hobby. I mean, do you envisage it going on for a long, long, long time? Or do you see a point in which it ends? I hope so. Um, I certainly, I know even now, I don't do this because I love it. I do it because it's a job, and I need to do that, and it's the best job I can get, I think, that will, that will cover our basic needs. So I will keep doing it as long as I need that job. When I don't need that job, i.e. when we move back to Europe, uh, which will happen in our lifetime, definitely, no toys about it, uh, I then have to make the decision, how many games are enough? Have I had enough? Do I need to keep doing this um, so I can keep playing all the latest and greatest? Or should I just stop and go back and play the 500 things I've already got or take a few years off or something like that? I don't know. I don't know what would happen if I took a few years off and then tried to make a comeback. What's the closest? Um, um, Jeremy Salinas did that with, uh, you know, Dragon Strike. He was, you know, he was top of the world. I mean, he was one of the number ones. I mean, had more hits than Tom Vassell. And then he took, what, three or four years off and came back with Man vs. Meeple. And he's having to climb back up to the top of that mountain again. Um, he gave up a lot for that. And I don't know. Would I do that? I don't know. That's It's too far in the future. Um, but I can certainly say, I, I know I'm supposed to say I'm doing this for the love of it. And, I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoy it. Uh, because it's Because people, I think, enjoy doing something they're good at. They, you know, there's, there's a sense of satisfaction. I mean, I, I, as a game designer, that was, to me, one of the number one concerns I always had that I always tried to push in game content was make the player feel good about themselves. 
because then they'll want to keep playing. It was That was actually a harsh lesson I learned on Siphon Filter 2, where I kind of got carried away with scripted sequences and you know um, just went overboard. And I made a weaker game as a result because the game wasn't responsive to letting the player do what they want to do and making them feel good about themselves. They instead, every level was a puzzle they had to solve to figure out what breadcrumb trail I'd let out for them. Um, so I learned a lot from that. And yeah. I, I feel like I do a good job. Even with my videos full of goofs, to me the goofs are immaterial because all they're supposed to do is with a high degree of confidence let you, the audience, know whether it's going to be a game for you. Brilliant. So your last game is a game that's yet to be released. This is Glenmore 2. Why is this going to the cabin and what can we as Matthias Kramer fans expect? Um. Well... First of all, full disclosure, I have not played it. I've just read about it. I know what's in it. They are going to be sending me a prototype so I can do a video for it in time for the Kickstarter. Um, and so, I don't know. I felt like maybe I was pushing the envelope of your simulation a little bit, but I said to heck with it. And I, I was fully prepared for you to sit back and say, no, you can't do one that doesn't exist yet. And I just would have switched to regular Glenmore. Because in all honesty, I was just going to put regular Glenmore on. But then I remembered, oh, Glenmore 2 is coming and it's going to be awesome because it's quasi-legacy. It, although not really, it's campaign game stuff and it has so many cool extra things. I'm so excited. But, I, I mean, if you like, we can just talk about regular Glenmore instead. Um, yeah, well, because that's basically... Uh, I mean, I don't know if Glenmore is the best tile lane game because this year has had some really awesome groovy ones. Because you know, it's one of the reasons Legrand now made it because it has tile laying in it, and I love tile laying because it's probably one of the most pure representations in board games of building something, of the satisfaction of look what I have created, look what this is, see how it all works together. It's a beautiful little machine where everything feeds into everything else and everything is laid out so wonderfully. I built this. I made this. And that's another thing I love so much. And a really great tile layer can give that that experience like nothing else. And Glenn Moore does. So actually, strictly speaking, now that you've got me on the fence here, because I have gone back and looked at my rankings, it was the potential of Glenn Moore 2 that put it on top because I'm just really excited about the stuff. I And I haven't read that much stuff. I, I, when they contacted me, I said, yes, of course, please. I love this thing to bits. Um, but, you know, the, the way it has the core game, but then you can mix and match in all these modules that really open up so many new and interesting novel takes. I think, from what I've read, it will have legs like no other tile layer. Um, Carpe Diem is amazing, but there's no way Carpe Diem or Santa Maria can have as much legs as Glenn Moore. Maybe even regular Glenn Moore, in all honesty, because... That is a hard game. Glenmore is a harsh, cruel, unforgiving game in that you have to play so well. You have to plan so hard. I mean, that's why, I mean, that's why I love Santa Maria and Carpe Diem 2, but Glenmore, because you're so restricted. Um, you know, it's a grid. I, I put this tile down, and then later on I put one next to it. I get to activate the first tile again. I can only ever do that four times, because I can only put something next to it four times. Except, no, that's not even that. Three times, because I had to put it next to something in the first place. So I've got such a small window to squeeze as much as I can out of every tile I place. That's what really makes Glenmore so special. So one more question. Yes. You're driving to the cabin. Mm -hmm. You're escaping the apocalypse. Okay. You're herring down the road. Hooray! You go around the corner. Uh Uh-oh. And the back, the back door of the car flies open. Four of the games fly off down a ravine into a river and are swept away for all eternity. What game do you hope is lying on the back seat? Gloomhaven. 
Not even a question. Not even uh, a hesitation. Because, actually, I mentioned this right up front, but then I forgot to come back to it. Gloomhaven was the one you allowed me to have expansion content. Um, and so, first of all, maybe it's stretching a bit. I'm assuming the uh, apocalypse doesn't start until after his new expansion comes out. But the fact... Absolutely not. We've timed it. Oh, it's coming in two days. i got to contact <laughs> Isaac Click and get an advanced copy. But even without that, I mean, I don't know if you talked about this with Isaac when you had him on. The, the man's insane. He keeps giving away free content. Uh, you know, I don't know how many times he's done it. Four or five times now where he's made these big, epic campaigns where everybody's playing along and he's playing as the dungeon master. There is, and, you know, and so that's what I refer to as the expansion content that's already available. All these different storylines he's created. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, the game will never stop giving. And the gameplay, the core heart of that gameplay is so amazing. So, yeah, and um, just the utility of that box, because, I mean, it's almost big enough to get in and, and try to stay warm on a cold, apocalyptic night. So I'm sure most people are aware of where to get in touch with you, but the people who aren't, how would they do that? Oh, well, the easiest thing is to go to rotto.com, which will actually just take you to youtube.com slash rotto. If anybody ever asks me a question on any video of mine, Provided YouTube gives me the notice, which they don't always, behind the scenes, YouTube has a lot of really terrible systems for content creators. Oh my God, they're so awful. But provided I get the notification, I will answer that question. But the same thing is true if you go to guild.rado.com, which is uh, my discussion forums on BoardGameGeek. Ask a question there. It will get answered. Or ping me on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash rotto. Or, I suppose, if you have to, facebook.com slash rotto runs through. Oh, but Facebook is the worst. Oh, God, it's so terrible. Um, any of those other avenues first. But Facebook, fine, as well. I think those are the main ones. Um, if you have just general purpose questions for me, you can always send them to email them at questions at rotto.com. And no matter what they are, provided they're not um, dirty, <laughs> I'll talk about them in the next podcast as well which you can always listen to at podcast.rado.com. Well, Richard Ham, thank you very much. Thank you. And if you want to suggest a guest or you want to say something nice about the show or if you want to say something horrible about the show, you can contact me on at 5 games for doomsday on Twitter. You can send me an email at 5 doomsday at gmail.com. You can give a rolling donation to help support the show at patreon.com forward slash 5G4D or a one-time PayPal donation at the bottom of the website 5gamesfordoomsday.com. And, if I haven't had to defenestrate to avoid the religious apologists and the ricotta army, I'll see you in two weeks for another... Five Games for Doomsday. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.